The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. And welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. My name is Darcy and I work as a producer here at the II. And I'm Ricky, I'm the production lead here at the II. And today we've got Me, My World and I, featuring renowned musician and author on mysticism and the occult, Gary Lackman, internationally acclaimed neuroscientist, Hannah Critchlow, and philosophy professor and expert of the senses, Barry Smith. And this took place in 2023 at How the Light Gets In Festival in Hay, the philosophy festival produced by the team here at the II. So Ricky, I think this was one of your debates. Please tell us a bit more. So yes, this debate is about experience and whether it is kind of defined by being subjective, you know, my experience, or whether such things as shared experiences, group experiences. So yeah, I mean, we always, we think we kind of have our own perspective on the world. We're kind of locked inside our own heads. But uh, things like football matches, uh, political rallies, uh, churches, it can be kind of more shared experiences where the kind of group takes on a mind of its own, as the saying goes. Also, under certain meditative and psychedelic conditions, there can be certain kind of shared consciousnesses, or some people claim. And so this debate is exploring all of these experiences. Is experience purely singular, or can we have such things as shared and group experiences? Interesting. And remember, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit ir.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Now over to our host for this debate, Matt O'Dowd. We see experience as quintessentially subjective, the perception and thoughts of a single individual. But while we take this for granted might it be an error? From parliament and politics, festivals and football stadiums to weddings and funerals, some of our most significant experiences occur in moments shared in collective experience with others. Crowds can be more intelligent than any of the individuals and more foolish than any of its members. Moreover, language is social and using language we adopt the thoughts of others, and we are therefore no longer fully ourselves. Should we conclude that experience is always shared and mediated through others, whether they're present or not? Would a new paradigm in which we view experience as collective and social help bring about a more harmonious society? Or is collective experience and behavior a dangerous idea that can be used by authority to impose subservience? And 
Is subjectivity essential to imagination, liberty, and creativity? To explore these issues, <coughs> we have three eminent speakers. We have Gary Luckman, uh, who is a writer, musician, and philosopher, formerly the bassist of the band Blondie. Gary has gained notoriety for his books on consciousness, time, and imagination, with his most recent book, Dreaming Ahead of Time, garnering critical acclaim. Really? <laughs> I haven't seen it, but it's okay, great, thank you. <laughs> Uh, we have uh, Hannah Critchlow, who is an internationally acclaimed neuroscientist with a background in neuropsychology, neuropsychiatry, pardon me. She is also a best-selling author whose work includes The Science of Fate and Joined Up Thinking. <laughs> um, and we have Barry Smith, who's a philosopher and professor and director of the Institute of Philosophy at University of London's School of Advanced Study. He also co-directs the Centre for the Study of the Senses which examines how our senses contribute to our perception of the world. So before we launch into our gentle or heated debates, um, I want to give our three panelists an opportunity to lay out their position on the subject. And in doing so, we're going to try to answer the following question, as loosely or strictly as you choose. Uh, is experience purely subjective or does our use of language make it almost entirely social? And um, Barry, we'll start with you, if that's okay. I didn't know you were, but let's do that. Okay. Uh, so is, it, is experience, exam question, is experience uh, subjective? Yes. Uh, in the sense that consciousness is about having subjective experience something that's happening to uh, a, a mind, something that's experienced in a mind by a mind. But uh, the question about subjectivity uh, is interestingly different. Subjectivity is one of those contested terms in philosophy. It's often very poorly understood. So people use the word subjectivity to mean uh, it's just something that occurs to me and it's defined entirely within my experience may be bearing no relation to anything outside. For example, I work in an area where I look at the nature of taste, the nature of uh, smell, nature of experience, and you have a lot of philosophers who say taste and smell are just experiences that go on in us. They're not about anything external. Don't believe that's right. So I think that subjectivity, a quality of experience, uh, can also be informed by something objective. In other words, right now, the experience you're having of this room, of the speakers on the stage, is informed by many things in the world around you making an impression on you, making a visual impression on you, hearing a voice speaking to you. You might have a residual taste of coffee in your mouth. So subjectivity doesn't exclude objectivity. And in fact, uh, it's, it's a terrible mistake of philosophy uh, in the modern period when Descartes thought that objectivity was everything in the external world, quite outside and maybe unreachable. How could I know that what I experienced in my mind corresponded to anything outside? And subjectivity was therefore something completely internal and sort of immured, walled in from the outside world. I think what we should instead think is that subjective experience is constantly informed by uh, the, 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 the things we're 
in contact with, the things that we're sensing, the things that are impinging on our experience. And, and if you think of it, conscious experience is therefore uh, not entirely under your control. In fact, a lot of it absolutely isn't under your control. You're sort of involuntarily hearing a voice, seeing uh, visual images coming to you or visual objects uh, presented to you. Now, another big mistake, and Descartes made many big mistakes, but the you know, really big mistake he made was the idea that um, he couldn't be certain of the external world, but he could be certain of how things were in his own mind. He could be certain about his own experience. Now, being certain about his own experience made that a domain of truth and knowledge that was guaranteed, and thus he cut himself off from the rest of the world by thinking, I can only know about my own mind. And I think he was wrong. We don't even know our own experience entirely accurately either. There are many things that we take to be parts of our experience that we're just simply wrong about. Hannah and others, people working in neuroscience, will often bring to mind and bring to light things that show us we're, we're completely wrong about our experience. So the idea that in experience, uh, there's no appearance and reality distinction. How things appear is how they are, I think, is mistaken. But equally, how things appear to us is sometimes how they are in the world around us. And sometimes they're not. But there's a, there's a free flow between what's objectively out there and what's subjectively going on in us. <coughs> and then final thought, remember, you could think of the Cartesian ego, you know, I'm, I'm by myself. Uh, and I'm wondering, uh, what can I be certain of? I can doubt everything, but I can't doubt that I'm thinking, and I think, therefore, I am, so I, I kind of know me. But as Wittgenstein pointed out quite correctly, to come up with that thought, that Cartesian thought, well, I, I think, therefore, I am. Where did that mind get the concept of I, as opposed to you? Where did it get the concept of thinking? All of those concepts had to be acquired and learned through acquiring a language and by being in contact with others. And there's some sense in which, if you think of a child, it doesn't start as an I. It might be that child is very intermingled experientially in an intersubjective way with the caregivers and with the, the immediate people it's in contact with. And it has to learn to have a sense of self that's separate and that's distinct from everything outside it. So this idea of self, I, me, subjectivity is completely sealed off doesn't really make any sense. I think it was the novelist Ian McEwan who came up with this nice idea that the first time you learn to keep a secret is when you have a self. Mm -hmm. I quite like that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. No, very good. Thank you. Uh, Gary, oh. would you care to, uh, to offer your few minutes? Um, well, I would think... Um, the kind of either or uh, question, the way it's set up, is it subjective, is it social? I, I think that's a non-starter because it's, it's both. I think the tough thing is how do we articulate it being both? Uh, because the two things seem to be mutually exclusive in, in a certain way. Uh, much along the ways that we're talking about Descartes, you know, uh, we have these two things, it's an interior, you know, uh, stuff and the stuff out there, and uh, they're very, very different. How could they possibly interact, and Descartes looked for the seat of the soul in the pineal gland, which incidentally is where in Hinduism uh, the third eye is supposed to be. I'm not saying Descartes was looking for his third eye, but he was looking for the soul in the place where 
Indian tradition is supposed to be. Um, also, um, it's, and it's historical. I mean, this, the whole notion of subjecti subjectivity starts sometime, like common language, perhaps late 18th century, early, yeah. early comes out of Kant or something. And then we have Coleridge here. He's famously talking about the subject and the object and this German metaphysics and philosophy. And this becomes the way things are talked about at a certain time. Um, but one thing I would like to avoid is the notion that our experience is socially constructed. And I don't know if that's we're leading, but that's one extreme way. Yes, we think we have a subjectivity. We think we have this inter interior world that's kind of ring-fenced. And you know, I, I can retreat from the outer world into it at some time. But then a variety of different schools uh, in the 70s and the 80s said, no, 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 it's all, it's, you, that's, that's an illusion. You, know, you, you don't have a sense of self outside <coughs> of your um, social world and all of that kind of thing. Um, but my, I always ask this question, it, it, if everything I experience and think and all that is socially constructed, is the idea that it's socially constructed, socially constructed as well? Because if it is, then I don't see it has any greater claim to truth or validity or reality than the other claim, because it all comes from the same source. You know? and, if that's the, and also, except in, the, except in your case. You, and you, you are the one who actually twigged that it's all socially constructed. So you somehow managed to pull yourself out of this mass and to be able to look out over everyone else. But the, the notion that it's socially constructed is true, then you can't do that. It's impossible. We can't bootstrap ourselves out of the media in which we're, we're doing this thinking. So I, I think it's this, but I may be wrong, but I think there's logical problems with that in the first place. Um, but I also, um, I, in a way, I've made a career writing about uh, British writers who nobody reads anymore. Uh, and there's one named Owen Barfield. And um, he's not that well known, but he was a great friend of C.S. Lewis. He was part of the, the Inklings with Tolkien in Oxford and all that. But um, he wrote a wonderful book called History um, in English Words that came out in the 1920s. And through a study of, of um, language, he came to the, the conclusion that the kind of language you use today, this prosaic, matter-of-fact, logical sequential, is hist historically produced because the further you go back in language, language itself seems to be more metaphoric and imaginative and, and kind of poetic. And uh, it shouldn't be, or at least the uh, philosophers of language at the time, Max Muller and others, this is the, the, you know, early 20th century, late 19th century, they're in the Darwinian paradigm. So you start with something really simple, ugh, ugh or trying to mimic animal noises. And then that gradually you know, uh, uh, gathers different sorts of things and it becomes language. Well, Barfield said, no, it isn't like that. Because if you go back, we never reach any kind of er language when it's just agug. The language we find in all the material that's there for us to find, it's the further you go back, the more poetic and imaginative. And he said participatory in the sense that there's a sense that the way humans saw the world at the time, it wasn't the cut the way we see it, subject, object. They participated within it a way. And he, would, he made a distinction. They sort of saw the world, even up into medieval times, he would say, as a sort of tapestry they were part of. Whereas we, we see the world as a box that we're in. We're like we're in some kind of container, the universe. They seem to see it as a sense they were part of this tapestry. So there's a sense that this notion of this, this great divide between inner and outer, which I prefer to subjective and objective, um, is historical. It's, it's, it, we've arrived at this point rather than it being how things are per se. Oh. Oh, thank you. Uh, Gary, and last of all, Hannah, would you care?
here to give us your take? Um, so what I've taken from what these two were saying was that actually I think we agree on the fact that experience, you know, you can't, you can't say it's purely subjective or purely objective. Um, and I want to kind of take us all back to the very beginning of how our sense of perception, our sense of reality in the world is actually formed. So if we go back to when we were a baby in the womb being formed, even before that actually, if we go back to when our mum's sperm, mum's egg and the dad's sperm fused together to create our embryo. So the 3.2 billion base pairs of nucleotides that are really unique the blueprint for our DNA that was given to us from our mum and dad, combining in this really individual way to create this highly unique blueprint for our life. So that was being, these genes were being expressed when we were a baby in the womb. And those genes being expressed creates proteins. And those proteins basically created the building blocks for our nerve cells, 86 billion nerve cells that were created within the baby's brain, our baby's brain, when we were in the womb. And the DNA that we were given from our mum and dad instructed how those um, nerve cells were then going to connect up when we were in the womb to create our foundation for thought, our foundation for memories, and our foundation for emotions, how we're going to perceive the world, how our sense of reality is going to be created, and how we're going to navigate through our life to cr eventually create our life stories. So then we emerge into the world, and we go through a set of experiences early years experiences, which then go on to further create that very individual cartography of the mind, of how these 86 billion nerve cells are connected up with 86 trillion connections that allow us to send electric signals whooshing around this circuit board around a highly individualized mind that creates our sense of reality. And information is constantly coming in from our outside world. It's thought that something in the region of 11 billion bytes of data per second is reaching our se um, senses every single second, and then entering our brains. But we're only consciously aware of something in the region of 30 to 40 bytes of data per second. So we're only consciously aware of a very small proportion of that information from the outside world. And the way that we read and process that information is, again, based on the deep genes that we've been given from our mum and dad, and also based on our early years' experiences. And we sometimes, do you know what, we sometimes make errors in our information processing because of the vast numbers involved. But you know what? It's absolutely okay that we make errors because within our brains, there's also embedded this deep drive of us to come together to discuss and to debate ideas and to see the world in different ways, to share our perspectives. That's really embedded within our social brain mm -hmm. circuit. And that helps us to basically balance out any errors in information processing and helps us to balance out any biases so that we can create a more accurate representation of the world. And it's thought that language is one means by which we do that. It helps to highlight particular bits of information so that we can start to process information from the world around us in a more accurate way. Oh, fascinating. Okay, so we have our positions laid out. Uh, let's get to the arguments. Um, and we're going to do this in three themes. Uh, the first theme will be uh, really sort of definitional. We're going to talk about what is experience and what role do others play in forming experience, some of which we've covered, but I think there's a lot more to say. Uh, Gary, would you care to, Barry, would you care to take that away? Yeah. So I think we, we 
we'd be best to start with um, a way of setting out what experience is that was given to us by P.F. Strawson. When you think about experience, you, you, you should distinguish between an experience and what an experience is of. So, and that's, that's important to realize that there's a distinction between just something going on in the mind of an individual and the idea that that experience is trying to be uh, pick up on or be informed by or be faithful to something going on outside it. Second distinction is distinction between an experience and the subject of an experience. So that's what we mean by subjective experience, namely that it's an experience that, it, that happens to a subject. Of course, it's a good question whether there can be experiences without a subjective experience. And I, I'm not sure, but I think the nearest we can come to that would be in cases of um, uh, people in persistent vegetative states who we know actually have waking cycles and sleeping cycles. And, and there you might have a sort of fluttering of consciousness which just sort of briefly arises and then disappears having no consequences for what comes before or what comes afterwards. That would be a kind of experience that didn't have a subjective experience. But that's not typically how it is for all of us. As we're functioning, there's experience and what experience is of. And I take it, the experience I'm having is of people in the room in front of me, smell of cut grass and earth, all sorts of things that are imposing themselves on me. And my experience is, um, shaped by other people as well. So other people can shape my experience. Other people can have an impact on, on me. But they tend to have an impact on me through my senses or through uh, that my, my body rather than anything else. And I think one of the terrible things about debates like this is the idea of the sort of Cartesian ego you know, existing independently of an embodied person. So we're embodied. If you come up to me in a state of anxiety and you manifest that sort of state of anxiety to me, it can have an impact on me. It can change my heart rate. It can change my adrenaline. It can change the things that are going on in me. In that sense, your experience is changing and shaping my experience, undoubtedly. And you have emotional contagion. When you're in a crowd and they're all getting whipped up and they're all getting mad and angry together, you can find yourself getting angry together. If we were in the days of Gary's band and we were bopping around together, you'll find that music entrains the heart rate and the heart rhythm of people so that it sinks, it goes into sync, it synchronizes. And so everybody there would be in a fairly similar state because of their heart rhythm being <coughs> entrained by and in sync with the music. But when they look at each other and one of them says, are you feeling it too? in those tender moments. <laughs> if you're being nice, you might say, yeah, but you're not. You're just being nice. You're not really feeling their feelings. You're not really feeling that. You can't feel their experience. What you can have is an experience that's subtly shaped by theirs, maybe even very similar to theirs. And then finally, instead of talking of the inner and the outer, and I'm glad Gary brought that up, instead of talking about the inner and the outer in terms of experience and mind, the most important inner, inner and outer is the boundaries of the body. That's sort of a huge part of what shapes us. And we have you know, things that come into our body, like the things we eat and the things we smell. And our chemical senses are the gatekeepers to kind of monitor what's coming in and out. We have things that 
will extend our sense of our body. Many of you will know that experience if you're driving a car where you go, ooh, ah, and it's as if your sense of self has sort of extended to exactly the shape of the car. If you're tapping with a stick on the ground, as Aristotle pointed out, where do you feel the ground? Answer, at the end of the stick. So experience and the body are kind of in, are, are in a constant dialogue, and they're, and they're fluid, and they can be moved. But unless we bring the body in here, we're not going to talk about what shapes our experience, and we're not going to get the right account of how others shape our experience socially. So I'm, I'm hearing that um, your sense of these very visceral feelings of these more expansive experiences of self and, and, and collective experiences stems from a more prosaic causes, if you like. Um, but I, uh, well, you, you say prosaic, but it's actually very sophisticated. I mean, the, the fact that I can read your emotions in your face, maybe in the stiffening of your musculoskeletal structure, and that that will actually have an empathetic and similar response in me, putting us into a position where we think we're really kind of eye to eye and feeling the same. That's an incredibly complicated mm. neurological act. So I don't think it's prosaic, but I don't see any magical way in which someone's um, mental experience sort of floats across and joins my mental <coughs> experience. No, I don't see that. I, I, f I feel like I'd, I'd love to turn to uh, yeah. Gary here because, I mean, you were playing at that festival where people were feeling that. So, uh, were so you there? You at that one? Um, no, sorry, I, um, I, I watched it on YouTube. No, <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's uh, no, exactly. I, um, I mean, all of that is true, but I, just one thing I, I, I did want to point out when you're talking about the body and visceral and all that, um, I think, was it 2002, 2003, like the Don't Start the War march, like the, the rock one before they yeah. actually invaded? Yeah. And it was this huge million man or million person, uh, I guess these days, um, you know, march uh, in London. And I went, and um, in Shaftesbury Avenue, and it's completely, you know, just filled, filled with people. You know front and back and I looked behind and I saw that people were doing the wave they were doing that and I said okay I'm not gonna do it <laughs> um, I'm not gonna do it I'm just gonna say I'm not gonna do it and I can see here and then I suddenly start to feel my arms <laughs> to go up. and I had to consciously I could decide then not not to respond to that I mean so I I may not all the time consciously choose my experience but yeah. I can choose my response yeah. to the experience and that Whoever is making that choice is something other than something like the ego, something like that. Yeah. It, it, it has reasons to do it. And, that, and um, there was a writer named Morris Berman, I don't know if he's around anymore, but he did a, a book called, called The Reenchantment of the Senses, I think, where he talks about the, this, the, the what we consider the magical being at this kind of visceral, visceral level. And it's something where it takes place sub the conscious mind and it has an effect. And, I mean, someone I've written about, the, the notorious Aleister Crowley was, you know, the, the dark magician of the last century, said the best magic happens when you absolutely have no idea how you did it. Just as you put, you know, you, you, you sunk that ball in, in, in the billiard uh, table and you have no idea how you made that mm -hmm. shot. So it somehow happens at this other kind of level. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, you know, when I was performing, you would suddenly, you'd feel this feedback coming back from the audience. and. That would happen more often in more intimate sort of settings in a club, and you're in a yeah. huge you know, thing like that. It's just like you're playing to the Grand Canyon or something. Yeah, yeah. But in that, you would feel like a feedback mechanism. And even performing, you would s things would happen, and something magical would take place <coughs> during the performance and all that. But I also think 
I, I want to say creation is, takes place in solitude in the sense that the songs written to perform were written by an individual in some place and in some way express that individual's feelings, thoughts, ideas about something at the same time. And then that gets translated through the medium of language and music and all of that. So, mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. um, <coughs> okay, so we have a few minutes left uh, to, to wrap up this theme. And I feel like we, we do need the, the neuroscientific perspective on, on what is going on with this, the, the, this feeling we have in a crowd. Uh, what do you think, Hannah? So Barry uh, and Gary were touching on it earlier. So we know that, for example, if someone in a crowd is feeling fearful, there might be a chemical that's secreted within their sweat that I would subconsciously pick up on that would prime my brain yeah. and um, activate the amygdala so that I have an increased sensitivity to threat appraisal. Or, for example, if uh, somebody around me is feeling happy, if my best friend lived, it's known that if my best friend was happy and living within 1.6 kilometers, the chances that I would also be feeling happy would increase by 25%. If my next door neighbor was feeling happy, uh, that would increase my probability of being happy also by 36%. There's something very interesting that happens uh, with my partner. So if I was living with a partner, I seem to have an, an immunity to any emotional contagion with them. <laughs> so the probability of my uh, kind of being afflicted by their moods swinging would be only 8%. Uh, so that's something very interesting that's happening there. But it's not just um, heart rates that synchronize within groups of people or emotions. It's also actually moral values. So we know that people, when they come together, their moral values, again, unconsciously start to align with each other. And then there's something that quite worrying, something quite worrying that can happen, actually, is that if you start to transcend, if you start to kind of dampen down your moral code and go down a route that uh, you normally wouldn't feel comfortable with because you're operating as part of a group, then in order for you to not feel that guilt signature lighting up in your brain, which can be quite uncomfortable, actually something interesting will happen within your striatum so that you feel more reward and motivation to continue to act in an immoral way. <laughs> so it would balance out that, okay. that kind of activity within the guilt uh, kind of circuits within the brain. But I also want to talk about what happens when groups of people are productively working together. So when they're innovating from each other, um, when they're learning from each other and they're building consensus without conflict, what we will see is that the electrical oscillations across their individual brain circuits that I was talking about earlier, those 86 trillion nerve cells, 86 billion nerve cells all connected to each other, what happened is if we got all of our brains together and started um, image, like analyzing them, analyzing the electrical activity of them, what we'd start to see is that if we were in, ag in agreement, if we were working together well, then our brain waves would start to synchronize. They'd start to become in step with each other. And that degree of brain synchronicity can actually predict how well a group is working together. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, there is ways that we can start to boost brain synchronicity amongst people. So for example, singing together, mm. kind of musical performances help boost brain synchronicity. Also exercise, joint exercise. So if we all got up, I'm not gonna suggest Am I going to suggest that we do this? No. <laughs> no, I, no, I'm not, I guess. I'm, I'm open. <laughs> I was gonna, if we all got up and started doing star jumps or running on the spot, <laughs> that might help boost our brain synchronicity. Um, so yeah, so there's some interesting things that happen when groups of people work yeah, together, yeah. for better or for worse. Mm. But the number one factor that can help predict how well a group will work together, whether they'll be able to access that amazing cognitive 
capacity that's available to them within the individual members, the number one predicting factor isn't the individual IQ scores of the individual members, it's something else. Can anyone guess what that predicting factor might be? I've read your article, so I know. You, yeah. <laughs> it's gender. So the higher the ratio of females within a group, the better that group will do at accessing that cognitive capacity that's available. And that's because, generally speaking, females are better at turn-taking and listening to each other. So, so going back to your question about <laughs> language and perception, <laughs> language is very important for helping us to access mm. IQ. Yeah. Sorry, and I just interrupted and, and, you. And it also <laughs> means that, that, that this panel is in trouble. <laughs> um, uh, I'd actually like to stick with you as we move into the next theme, uh, Hannah. Um, uh, we, so the, the theme that we're exploring now is essentially do individuals share a, a collective experience in large gatherings, religious service, services and raves, and are they valuable or dangerous? And so maybe we can pry apart this, something about this emergent quality? Is it, is it, um, is it something we can understand? And, and is it something that's, that's, in a sense, real part of, part of ourselves? Or is it, is it just fortunate that, that, that we work like this? No, no, it's deeply embedded within our neural circuitry that we feel safer in groups. You know, back in the day on the savannah, it would help if we were operated as a group. There'd be more people that could go out foraging or hunting for food. There's safety in numbers. We can take it in, you know, shifts so that we can look after each mm. other whilst other people sleep. We can help look after each other's young and with the rearing that's involved in that. So that so embedded within our neural circuitry is this deep desire to be social, to to work, operate as groups. Um, and I was going to say something else that was really fascinating, and it's <laughs> completely gone. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, we do have circuitry that, that, that's inbuilt for empathy and, and even mimicry. Yes. Theory yeah, of the mind, mirror, mirror all of that. So the mirror, yeah, so the mirror neuron circuits um, are involved, thought to be involved in imitation and also kind of feeling empathy uh, for other people as well. Um, what, what happened during the pandemic was um, terrifying and horrific for a lot of people. Um, and also quite interesting for neuroscientists and psychologists. <laughs> Um, so what they found is that as uh, different parts of the world uh, went into and out of lockdown measures, what we saw that was there was a decrease in well-being, but also a decrease in IQ as people went into that, those isolation measures. And then as uh, people re-entered society and the measures were cut off, then IQ steadily rose back to normal levels again. So there's something very important about being part of a group that allows our, our IQ to be high, mm -hmm. or to retain, but mm -hmm. keep its, you know, mm -hmm. that, its kind of level at that point. Now, going back to this social circuit that's embedded within the brain, it's thought that some people uh, kind of want to be more sociable than others. So if we call those people extroverts, say, and we call people that are less interested in socializing quite as much introverts, then the idea is there's a particular region in the brain that's slightly smaller in those introverts. And they have, um, because they've got a lower volume within that brain region, they've actually got less beta endorphin uh, receptors within that, that region. And they feel quite happy to invest their energy in maintaining a smaller network of contacts uh, and invest a greater amount of energy in each one of those contacts. 
So they create this almost village of support, mm. which is really important. Now, extroverts, if we want to call them that, well, when we scan them under the um, brain imaging scan, we'll see that they've got a slightly larger area of this brain, and it's hypothesized that they'll have more beta endorphin receptor slots, and they're literally being driven to go out and to interact with more people to fill up those beta endorphin slots so that they can feel sated. Now, those people are also very important in that they help um, kind of move from clique to clique, like close supportive group from close supportive group, to help ideas hop from group mm. to group so that it doesn't become this kind of echo chamber that can um, kind of have the wrong uh, kind of sense of reality in some ways. So it helps innovation and ideas spread from group to group. Mm. And there's some scientists that believe that increasingly, as a species, we've been compelled to develop these technologies, these communication technologies that are allowing us to communicate and cross ge geographical borders like never before. And that is helping us to create almost this mega connect interconnected kind of hive mind uh, that will be at the next uh, evolutionary step in our species progression. Mm. Or increasingly isolated bubbles, but <laughs> that's another yeah, story. Yeah, it could go either way, couldn't it? <laughs> I mean, I've always thought introverts uh, had more going on in their head. Um, than the extroverts. And the extroverts have to run here and there to get stuff to fill it up, like it's an empty flat, and they have to go buy stuff and fill it up. And there's, you know, I don't know if you know Sartre's uh, novel Nausea. As an introvert, he, I agree. <laughs> I'm here. I'm in a huge group. I perform in front of people all the time. So in any case, um, I'd rather be home reading. But um, <laughs> Sartre, in his novel Nausea, he talks about the cafe owner the character goes to, and he says when his cafe empties, his head empties too, oh. in the sense that there. are it's a caricature, but some types of people, they need that because they, they if are left to their own, they don't have anything going on mm -hmm. and they feel an emptiness. I mean, I guess the other side of that is, is the introvert who's so, you know, into his own head or her head that they feel threatened by being in a crowd or they're too easily distracted by things. I know that happens to me. If there's too much going around me at the same time, I, I just start to zone out and I have to, I have to go away. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. If, uh, should I get my brain scanned? Should I figure out? If I <laughs> no. If I, no, don't. Okay. <laughs> but one thing, I'd, if I could just add, tack on what you said before about how yes, you, we can read each other and then feel the same thing, but you don't think there's any kind of uh, trans. Um, I've, I've experienced telepathic uh, encounters, and I've ex experienced shared dreams, and I've written about them in my book, and I have more than 40 years plus of journaling this sort of stuff. So I have to say that I, I would take argument with, with you there. Or I beg to differ rather than take argument. Yeah. This is a friendly well, gathering. I'm, so. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you have felt you experienced that. No, yeah. I did experience yeah. I didn't feel that I experienced it. I experienced it. I, ha I, I have it on record. I have yeah. it on record. I if have I, if I, I, I met you in a pub saying that, I would, I would buy your drink and leave. But since we're on a panel, I'd want to know more. But uh, I think. I mean, of course, we can be affected by crowds, and of course, we can shape. And there are uh, mechanisms, there are visceral mechanisms, cortical mechanisms, and so on, for shaping that kind of convergence in 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 the state we're in. But it, it's very modulated by other factors. You know that when you're when you've lost in love and you're feeling quite sad, you can be in one of those big crowds, and you can have that awful experience of sharing the moment but being alone. I mean, it can happen too. Mm. So there's a way in which it's not, as it were, just set. You're this or you're that. Very context dependent, modulated by all sorts of factors that are going on in you. But equally, I, I think, um, as well as 
Anna's talk of the introverts and extroverts, there's, there's the, the Dunbar number. I mean, there's only about 30 people you can actually keep and maintain good contact with, re, you know, really put the work into. Sometimes if you've got more than that, you're just not going to give them enough of your time and you're not going to have enough of theirs. So there, there, there's a kind of ideal number. Now, that's been slightly distorted by social media. And I think the social media fact that's kind of worrying, and Hannah alluded to it when she said, your moral values can be sort of slightly distorted by the desire to go along with people. And I think I, I would be very surprised if we haven't all done a bit of this, but I'll be very impressed if you haven't. There's some issue that comes up, some new political issue, world issue comes up, and it's suddenly flashed up on your Twitter feed. And, and you don't really know what you think about it. So you have a look and see what your group think about it. What are the people I respect and admire and who I've agreed with, what do they think about it? And then you contract out, and then you say like, because that's your group, that's their view, that's what the view they take on it. So I think that can be quite dangerous, the contracting out, the idea that uh, you know, because you've agreed with a lot of people about a lot of things, that somehow that will extend to other things beyond. There's still the obligation to figure it out for yourself and think it through. Yeah, this this gets us to a darker part of the debate and the oh good the cultural the, the <laughs> cultural bubble forming and and so on. Um, are, are we ready to go straight there? I'm still interested in in one more thing before before we quite go there, and that is so we see these sort of emergent behaviours in groups of people, um, and I, I get a sense, uh, Barry, that you you feel that. It's not a strongly emergent behaviour. It's just a pattern that, that comes about versus uh, uh, versus a group of people being much more than the sum of their parts, uh, in the sense that we may have circuitry that's designed to explicitly be in sync with other people. Yeah, I mean, you like being in sync with people. Think of you know dancing with others. Dancing's an incredibly complicated act because you have to move your body or signal to move your body ahead of where the music's going to be so that your limbs actually coordinate with the music and you look as though you're in rhythm. And when you're doing that with someone else, you're going to be influenced by the, the way they're dancing and their rhythm, unless you're just locked into your, your own state of mind. Uh, and you can see when this doesn't work by just looking on YouTube at any Barry Manilow concert. You see people, <laughs> you see them clapping out of time and I think that answers a lot of questions. But, but, but um, that, that sense in which we're all doing something uh, together, the thing that you said that's most important is that emergent behavior. It's emergent behavior. Mm. Now that will have an influence on our internal experience. But you can also have a sort of commentary for yourself on that, on that collective experience. Mm. You know, you, you, I used to do rowing at school. Uh, you're, you're, you're rowing in an eight. There's a funny sense in which when it's absolutely in rhythm, you feel you're contributing to it, but you're not fully in control of it, and you feel a little bit out of control. And it's a sort of dangerous moment where you sort of think, <gasps> if I'm not just doing everything right, I'm kind of just as you, it's like running downhill too fast, and then you begin to think, mm -hmm. oh, this is all a bit worrying. So you can have that sort of internal sort of separation from how it's going on, and I think that's terribly important. We're not just sort of completely bounced into one state or the another, even if our behaviours are extremely coordinated <coughs> and there's an emergent property mm -hmm. of the, the whole, mm -hmm. the rowing crew. Mm -hmm. So I mean, the implication is that you know, there are neural systems that, that you know, do these things, but um, 
Gary, some of the things you said suggest that maybe it's it's more than that. I mean, if we're talking about telepathy and shared uh, things, well, I, I mean, I, 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 I'm not, I'm not saying this is this can account for telepathy. This can account for. I guess I guess I would call myself. Well, I, I want to say phenomenologist, but not with a philosopher in the room. So I say I'm a naturalist. So mm. I've kept a record of these experiences happening. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, along with telepathic and shared, I've also had precognitive dreams. And that's even worse than because <laughs> I'm dreaming about something that hasn't happened yet. And, and, act, and it turns out it happens. And it's not a prediction. It's not a prophecy. It's not a premonition. I don't know I've had a precognitive dream until later that day or the next day or next week when what I dreamt of and is written down in my dream journal, so I can, I can refer to it, uh, actually takes place. So, and this, this all started, it was a book written in the 1920s by a guy named J.W. Dunn, who's an aeronautics engineer. It's called An Experiment with Time. And just by chance, he discovered that bits and pieces of his own future were coming to him in advance. And it wasn't the future, he wasn't like looking over the great plateau of time and seeing everything. What he would read in the newspaper, you know, what he would see walking down the street or something like that, that would happen. And all I did was read that book, and I said, okay, I'll do what he did, and I started writing down my dreams. Mm. And it happened fairly quickly. It's all in the book, folks. So just like my other books, they're in the bookshop so down there. <laughs> so th and if you're really gripped by this, you'll make a beeline for it after the talk. Thank you. So there can be other explanations of this. I mean, I'm glad you write it down, because I think we've all had the experience of thinking oh, um, I thought that day I was going to see someone, and oh, I did see them, or I bumped into them, and you think, wow, that's amazing. What you don't know, unless you've written it down, is whether the moment at which you see them, you have an experience as if you had been thinking about seeing them before. You're not, you're not quite sure. Um, just as we know, deja vu is really about shuffling something that's immediately happened into the long-term store, and you're comparing current experience with long-term, you think, oh my god, this happened to me before. Um, whether or not Gary reads what happens subsequently is closer to the interpretation that he's written down. I don't know. We, we'll, we'll talk about that later. Well, these are dreams. I, 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 I know they're dreams. I know so, they're dreams. So it's not like, ah, oh, hmm, yeah, I was thinking of so-and-so so at the time I dreamt yeah. that. I wasn't thinking of so-and-so so, so at dreams the time are, I dreamt that. I dreamt it. Right. Dreams are funny things. However, there was a lot of money given to uh, Edinburgh University by uh, Arthur, Kessler. Arthur Kessler's estate. Yeah. He's in my book as well. And Arthur Kessler uh, created a chair in paranormal psychology. It was known locally in Edinburgh as Arthur's Seat. And, and uh, that was going to look at, the first project they were going to look at was Second Sight in the Highlands. And um, I always thought, and I can say this because I'm a Scot, I always thought it was, you know, kind of a form of meanness that you could do second sight. You didn't have to pick up the telephone. Are you there, Morag? Hamish, is that you? But they got absolutely no results. They ended up being very good at generating research about people's thoughts, beliefs, attitudes to the paranormal. But so far, we haven't had convincing scientific evidence. Yeah, but the phenomenon is not, it's not amenable to the repeatability that's part of the hard criteria for science. Just like falling in love, you can't just do that. Isn't that just lucky? Like two people listen to a Beethoven symphony. One thinks it's fantastic. Yeah. The other one thinks I, it's I rubbish. I think we've become a different Which panel? one is right? So I'm saying there's, it's <laughs> the anecdotal material for me is but the scientific, the, the stats have been in forever, going back to J.B. Ryan. Dean Radin's most recent book, uh, Real Magic. He, the, Jessica Utz, who's up at, uh, I think she's up in Edinburgh, she said, if the stats were about anything other than precognition, no one would bat an eye at them. And this was the sort of argument that Rupert Sheldrake was having with Michael uh, Schremer earlier today. It's like, you don't look at the evidence. Well, we don't look at the evidence because we know it can't be evidence because these sorts of things don't happen. So 
I, I think the anecdotal evidence is the one you should go to. Forget all the stats, because people get bored with Zenner cards. People get bored trying to make the dice do something else. But put them in a live social situation, when they have a, a relationship with someone or something going on, then those things might happen. So when no one's let, looking, let's, let's, follow, let's follow this <laughs> up later. Let's follow this up later. This is okay, an important okay, conversation. Sorry. I've got invigorated. Um, but we have, we have much to get to in uh, the, the topic of the moment. Uh, I, I'm deeply fascinated myself. Um, I actually dreamt this entire thing would happen last night. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so oh, God. <laughs> I'm pulling my leg. Oh, is this my yeah. Okay, so. What, I mean, what I really like about neuroscience is that actually there is still so much that we don't really understand. We don't mm -hmm. really completely yeah. know about the mm -hmm. mechanistic, yeah. nu you know, but nuts and bolts mm -hmm. of how our sense of perception is really put together. There's still mm -hmm. so many questions there. Um, and I think I want to go back to a study that was done fairly recently. It's quite a small scale, scale study that came from a very unlikely source. So it was a group of traders on Wall Street. And a guy called John Coates uh, was a trader back in the day when they were trading you know, on the stock floor and it was very busy, sell, 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 you know, frantic atmosphere. And he was very successful. Uh, incredibly successful, and he, he kind of like started to scratch his uh, scratch his head and just think, what is it about me? He was Australian. I can't do an Australian accent, but he said, <laughs> what is it about me that's so successful? And he had like a hunch of an idea, like a heart flicker, a hunch of an idea of what it could be. And so what he did was he decided to retrain in neuroscience, which is where I met him at the Judge Business School hmm. at Cambridge University when I was back in the day doing my PhD. And what he found in an admittedly small-scale study... With Sarah Garfinkel, who oh, actually yeah, did I'm gonna the move, study. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to go on to her. Sarah Garfinkel, she's great. Um, but what he found in an admittedly small-scale study was that um, those traders that were better able to detect their heartbeat made more money. And actually, the heartbeat detection ability predicted the amount of profits they made during the next year's period of economic downturn. Mm. And so, so this is really interesting because I think, well, God, is there any way that I could uh, kind of elevate my bank balance? <laughs> is, there, is there anything that I could do? So his idea is that basically what happened back in the day on the trading floor, those people that were better able to tap into that collective intelligence, that wisdom that was in the crowd on the trading floor around them and better impact their decision making really quickly without them being consciously aware of it, basically made more money. Mm -hmm. So there's this embodied cognition. There's a huge number of peripheral nerve cells that exist within our body. So I was talking earlier about this circuit within our brain, but that's not, the, that's not the be, be, be all and end all. There's also all this amazing information that is being stored within our body. And that gut feeling or that heart flicker is basically information that's being sent up from those peripheral nerve cells via our vagus nerve, which is a bundle of nerves, which runs into the brain, which basically alerts our brain and says, hey, guys, there's all people, there's like some in, in, interesting information here. And if we better tap into that vagal nerve activity, if we increase its sensitivity, perhaps <coughs> we can actually better tap into all of that intelligence that we might not otherwise have such ready access, ready access but it, to. But it's, it's important to say about that, this is about um, connection between the heart and the brain. So every time your heart beats, it sends a signal to the brain. And if you're able to, when, when you say they're able to detect, they don't know they can detect. So what you do is you get them to estimate how many heartbeats they've had in a minute, or to sync uh, a, a sound that's being made, many different uh, rhythms, which one is your heartbeat. Now, People say, I'm just guessing, or, you know, so they might, you say, how many heartbeats have you had in a minute? And they say, I, I don't know, uh, guess, 46. And for some, it's 46. Mm. For others, it's way off. So you don't necessarily know you've got this ability. 
And, and the, the really cool thing was finding out it was people who had that ability, whether they knew it or not, whose uh, profit loss score was higher because they were able to use that signal. Maybe because they were just getting a little bit of fear response very quickly when they saw that the numbers were going the wrong way mm. and they were able to make very fast decisions. But um, maybe you can be trained to improve that. Jury's still out on that. It looks as though we come down into people who are very good interceptors and know their own bodily states and others who are not very good at that. And it turns out the people who are better at being able to monitor or use their own heart rate are quicker and better able to recognize the emotions of others. So the more you're tuned into yourself, the better you are empathetically at paying attention to others. Mm. I think we should move on to the third and final theme. So speaking of Wall Street, uh, the question is, is Western culture too focused on individual subjective experience? Um, and should we be more focused on shared collective experience? And uh, Gary, maybe we can start with you. Well, um, put it in, in a global perspective, that's the sort of rhetoric that um, Vladimir Putin um, says, um, and uh, it's the, uh, the decadent me economy of the West, where everything's for sale. Uh, reality is malleable, anything you want, you can have it. And uh, whereas the, the Western ego thinks about me, 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 the Russian soul thinks of we, the group. And this goes back, this is, this, that's, that's a cliche. I mean, I, 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 again, it's another book, folks, out there. Return of Holy Russia, and it's about Putin's strategy of reinvigorating this identity Russia had in the 19th century, being the last bastion of, of the true Christian faith and all this sort of thing. And it's, it's, he's, he's like a mafia don who gives a lot of money to the church. Um, but, uh, and this is something that goes way back. I mean, um, Oswald Spengler, who wrote a best-selling book about the decline of the West in 1918, it's taken a while, so I, I tend to think of it as the recline of the West rather than the decline of it. Uh, but he said, too, that, you know, uh, the Russians think of we and, and, and the kind of onion dome is, is this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is a, I know you weren't thinking of it in that context, but it's kind of something that it's being played out on a kind of broader kind of geopolitical uh, uh, scale now. Uh, but I, I, you know, I, I don't know. It's, uh, I, I would say it's like, you know, do you want to be alone? Yeah, sometimes. Do you want to be with a group? Yeah, sometimes. You know, it's, like, it's not one or the other. Yeah. It's sort of like what another thing I find a bit dodgy is the individual seems to be getting slowly, slowly put out of business these days because we all belong to some groups of some kind. And if you don't, you're a lone nutter. And uh, is there a, a part of the brain that lets you know whether you're one of those or not? <laughs> um, so I, I think, again, you know, I, perhaps I'm, I'm, I'm battling for the romantic individual character to maintain a place in this increasingly sort of socialized world where you, know, you, you have to belong to a group and identify in some way with a group, whether you want to or not. You yeah. belong to some group whether you want to or not. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm trying to resist that sort of thing. Hannah, you talked about the decline of IQ in the 70s. Mm -hmm. Is that related to? You, you've talked about. Oh no, it went up in the 70s. It went up in the 70s, yeah, yeah, but then it went, went down. And then it went. The so it went down during the pandemic. Then in the pandemic, okay. Oh yeah, no. So but those born in the 70s um, were basically they've got the peak of IQ, and now basically for <laughs> most born afterwards, uh, yeah, the IQ has been slighted. There's some data to indicate across Europe that it's been declining slightly. Okay, and that's related to the to the isolation. But is there any connection to the? 
the so-called rise of me culture individualism in the West? It's not entirely clear what that's linked to. It might be diet, it might be lifestyle, um, it might be the way that we socialise, it's not entirely clear. Um, I think going back to this idea of we culture and me culture, there's been some lovely studies that have looked at, for example, if you present an image of, say, a fish tank, a scene like a fish tank, so you've got bubbles, you've got rocks, you've got little plants there, and you've got some fish, and then you ask some children and some adults that are based either in the West or in the East, so in this case it was people in Japan versus those in, I think it was America or England, mm -hmm. basically what you would see is that the people from Japan would be more likely to um, kind of list the scene. So they would talk about the bubbles, they'd talk about the rock. The people from America uh, would be there just completely focused on the fish. Mm. Mm. Um, and then we, when we also ask younger children to um, kind of group together mm. uh, some, some items that are within a different scene, so this might be cows, um, kind of pigs, mm. chickens, grass, corn, etc., etc. People in America are more likely to categorise and group things based on their animals. So therefore we'll group them together. Oh, okay. Whereas those in Japan were more likely to group them as the cow is grouped with the grass because of the, uh, the relationship. So the emphasis mm. is more on the relationship. Mm. Barry, I'm wondering if you have any yeah, words on I, this. I, I, maybe we can sort of sum up something uh, that's part of capitalism and commercialism about the, the, the we culture, me culture. We used to have a goods economy, and then we had a service economy, and we now have an experience economy. <laughs> have you not noticed that there's no such thing as an advert for a hotel? It's not a hotel, it's an experience, <laughs> right? So, so, so people are trying to say, what can we do for you to give you better and better experiences? What can enhance your experiences? When, you know, I occasionally talk to uh, food and drinks industry people because of my, my work on uh, taste and flavor. And they all say, how can we sort of find a, a special moment, a kind of, you know, a moment out of life where you really concentrate and dwell and you have something, you know, just an experience for you. And they're all trying to find that out. So the, that experience thing is driven also by commercial needs and interests. It's not just about a sort of cultural change in our thinking. We should bear that in mind. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you, you don't see a film these days, you experience the film. Exactly. 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 Could everyone please thank our wonderful panelists one more time? Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.